We are in Mark chapter 9, so if you've got your Bible, open up to there, or turn it on if that's your preferred method. It's quite a bit of a text, long text, so um, you can just hang out in your seat, um, you can follow along on the screen, that's really helpful for you. But we're, we've been traveling through the book of Mark, understanding what it means to understand just to really look at Jesus and see how he wants to present Jesus to us and also learn something about discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. And so um, we're moving along uh, at a a rapid pace and we're moving towards Good Friday and Easter. That's where we're headed in the story. And so we're gonna uh, pick up in verse two and then we're gonna read all the way down to verse 29. So this is Mark 9, two through 29. what it says. And Mark lets us know that, and, and after six days, this is six days after the previous conversation, we covered this last week of Jesus kind of ex- very clearly explaining to his disciples really for the first time of what it means that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be rejected and die. So it's been six days after that. After, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. (laughs) He he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd when they saw him, were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. 
And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. Uh, But Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Last night, I um, read this story, the the mountaintop story, the transfiguration story to my my kids, uh, four and eight, they're four and eight at dinner. I read them the story. And then after I finished the story, I closed the Bible and I said, all right, what's it about? And one of them said, Jesus is God. That's what they shouted out, which if for, you know, four and eight-year-olds, that's a hedging your bets kind of answer. When you're in the Bible study, especially when you're in a Bible study with a, when you're a pastor's kid, they just, they're just like, they, I think they never even looked up. They just kind of kept eating their pizza like Jesus is God. <laughs> and what's funny about that is I, well, I laughed and I said, you know, technically for once you're actually right. That is, the, that is exactly the accurate answer for what is this about? You know, it's, um, if you're like a, a Bible reader, you, you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're familiar with the book of Exodus in particular, you might, uh, you might have caught some parallels. Remember, does anything about this story sound familiar to you? Um, it, so it, Moses, you know, that big moment when he goes up to the mountain, gets the tablets, gets the law, all of that. So um, Exodus 33 and 34, you can read about that. There's a lot of parallels going on there. You know, six days he waited for God to show up, six days goes up on a mountain, all of these things. There's a cloud, God's presence comes down, all of that. Um, and what happens is, is you know, in that, in that time frame, Moses asks at one point to see the presence, the glory of God. He's like, I wanna see it, you know? And God's like, you don't know what you're asking, right? Because no man, no human being can be in the presence of the glory of God. But because he finds favor on Moses, he's like, well, I'll tell you what, I'll let you witness my backside. <laughs> Literally. So he hides him. That's what it is, his backside. And so he hides him, you know, and passes by, and Moses just sees the backside of God. And what happens after that? Eventually, Moses comes down, and you might remember <laughs> his face is shining, it's glowing because he's witnessed the presence of God, and it terrifies the people. And so they're like, dude, you've, we've got to put something over your face. Like it's too much for us. Well, so here's Jesus. He's, done, he's, he's, he's explained this really terrifying reality that he's gonna have to go die. Um, you know, they, they get this idea. They're starting to grasp this understanding that Jesus is king, he's Lord. They're having to redefine and recategorize and what, it mean, what that means. And, and so what he does is he kind of gives these guys a gift, a vision. He's kind of confirming everything for them. 
And so he goes up on the mountaintop, uh, much like Moses, you know, he goes up on the mountaintop and he's transformed, you know, transfigured in front of them. And he begins shining intensely white. But the difference is, if you, if you caught it, is Jesus is not reflecting light, right? He's the source. He's radiating the light himself. So Jesus, unlike any of the prophets in the Old Testament, like a Moses or like an Elijah, who talked with God, actually is the presence of God coming to earth. Uh, and the boys are absolutely terrifying, right? Uh, you can read about the story in Matthew 17. You can read about the story in Luke 9. You can get a few different little details of what's happening there. Um, but in Matthew 17, he tells, tells us that at this moment when this happens, the boys hit the deck. I mean, they just fall down on their face because they are terrified. And rightfully so, you know, if one of your best friends all of a sudden starts glowing, uh, bright lights, okay, you're gonna be terrified too, right? And so um, they're terrified, that makes sense. That's a proper response, that's a good response. And actually, there's something instructive about that. Fear um, motivates them into a life of worship. And in a lot of ways, it's what we're gonna be talking about is worship. You know, fear is the beginning place. It's the source, wonder. A sense of wonder leads us into worship. And that's what's happening here in them. Uh, worship is just simply ascribing ultimate value to something. It's, it's not just important to you, but it's everything to you. Worship, to worship something means to find all your meaning in that. Well, this transfiguration will be a pivotal, pivotal, wonderful moment that empowers these disciples to find all their meaning in Jesus. You know, there's two journeys, like there's two stories Mark's telling you, really. And, and, and you need to grasp that. You know, when you read the Bible, you gotta always be asking, like, what, why is he telling me the story? Well, there's two journeys that Jesus is on. One, one journey is, of course, he's heading, to the, he's heading to Good Friday and Easter. Like he's on this journey to die and to resurrect and to show that he is Lord and he wants to heal and he wants to save. The other journey he's on is really to form these disciples, to train them, to get them to understand. And they're very much slow on the uptake like me, but to understand what it means that he is Lord and, and, and the way in which he lives his life and, and, and how that will change them. And this radically shifts and changes Peter particularly. And Peter's full of blunders when you read the, the gospel story. And I think Peter very deliberately wants you to see his blunders, not just so that you get a picture that Jesus is Lord, but so that you get a picture that as a disciple, it really takes you time to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, so don't be impatient with yourself as you try to figure it out. It's years later, and, and Brad referenced it in, the, in liturgy, but it's years later, you know, Second Peter uh, chapter one, that Peter kind of gives this like, you've got this speech to early Christians. You've got it. You can do it. You've got everything you need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. You know, if you know about him, you can do this. You can radically shift and change your life if you know Jesus and, and, and he's essentially in that letter, that first chapter, he's like, I'm not lying to you guys. I'm not trying to, I'm not telling you myths. I was there, I was on the mountain. I saw the lights, you know, I, I heard the voice. This is real. It's his way. And you know, by then Peter's a completely different person. And so in many ways, this moment, this scene really shaped his whole life and his whole understanding. And um, 
And so, yeah, it really transformed his worship. And that's later in, in when he's writing these, his letters to the early church, he's trying to explain to them what it means to worship Jesus. How do you really ascribe all your, get, you know, give, find all of your meaning, find all of your purpose, find all of your value in Jesus and shape your whole life around Jesus. And so, okay, so let's talk about worship for a second. Um, worship is this funny word. I think it's a slippery word. I think it's an abstract word in the church. Um, it's, it's just this word that we throw around in Christian community. And sometimes I just wonder, like, what are we talking about when we say it? I've had a lot of tension with the word worship pretty much my whole life. I was a kid. As a kid, I grew up with a, a, a pastor uh, as a father, and he was a worship pastor, a worship director. Um, and it's been my experience that people in the church are often left with a kind of scattered and hazy understanding of what it means to worship Jesus, to worship God. Um, it's just why I think sometimes we just categorize and relegate the meaning of the word to singing songs on, on Sunday at church, you know? It's like, he's the worship guy, she's the worship gal, whatever it is. And it's like, wait, what? So worship is just singing hymns on Sunday? No, it's, it's far bigger than that. It's not less than singing. It's just that it's so much more. Well, here's the thing. I, I think what's great is I think really this, this, this whole, that's why I read the entirety of the story, not just the mountaintop, but coming down from the mountain, all of it that comes with it. I really think that what this does is it shows us really um, what it means to worship. Because I just hate abstract words in Christian circles. I, I, I hate that we just use words and we throw them around and they act as counterfeits to actually being different kinds of people. And so I, I think what the whole passage does gives us a blueprint, a really concrete understanding of what it means to worship Jesus, all right? So what I did was I, 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 I tried to break it up into four bite-sized chunks um, that we can follow. So here's like four signs Four things to remember, four things you gotta learn to understand in terms of what it means to worship Jesus, all right? You ready? All right, let's, let's, let's get into it. So first, it means this, to worship Jesus. It means, first, learn, it means you listen before you talk. That's hard for preachers. Uh, listen before you talk, listen before you work. Uh, not just to your friends and your spouse, Although that's good, you should do that. But learn to listen before you talk, before you do, before you work. Listen before anything. Listen to Jesus before you do anything. Peter, James, and John see this transfiguration and they know they're seeing something sacred, special, wonderful, right? They know they're in the presence of something unbelievable. It's why they hit the deck and cover their face. They are terrified. Peter says, this is so good. It's amazing. And if you remember, if you were here last weekend, there was this whole, Jesus explains that he's, who am I? You're, you're the Christ. Yes. What's that mean to you exactly, right? And it's like, I gotta suffer. I gotta be rejected. I gotta die. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. You don't get it. You're not gonna suffer. You don't have to go a hard road. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about, right? So Peter, it's only been six days. Peter's probably still a little wounded. You know, he's been through, he's had a rough week. It's just six days ago. And so what's he do in this moment with this, this holy moment of wonder and amazement? 
he scrambles, <laughs> doesn't he? And, he? and he tries to commemorate the moment. I think, I think he's brown. I, I think he's trying to impress Jesus. He's like, well, I screwed up six days ago. I ain't screwing this one up. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna deploy my gifts and I'm gonna build tents. And so he's like, let's, let, here, here's what we're doing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna build, but here's the thing. He, why does he say, Mark tells us why he does this. I love how Mark lets us know. Verse six, he says, he didn't know what to say. <laughs> you ever had that moment? Like spouse, like if you're married, you've had that moment plenty of times, like standing in the kitchen, your, your spouse is telling you something. You're like, I don't know what to say right now. You know what I mean? And so you, you just, so you fumble out some words. Peter just doesn't know what to say. He's scared. So he offers to build these three little tents, three little homes on top of a mountain for these heroes, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. But here's what's great. All right, here's what's great. Peter doesn't get an answer, does he? Uh, <laughs> it says this cloud, Mark just goes right to the next verse and he says, and a cloud overshadowed them. Clouds in the Bible usually means God is coming down <laughs> to do something. A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Um, th this is great. Matthew 17, verse five, if you, if you were to turn there and look that up, actually gives us a little bit more detail. It's in this scene that they're, they're, they're seeing Jesus like shining like the sun. Peter's terrified. And he, in his fear and in his, his anxiety, he says, here's what we should do. And Matthew lets us know that he's interrupted. And God's like, shh, stop talking. I know you're anxious. Stop talking. And he says this over him. Peter's overwhelmed with trying to please Jesus. And so like every other pastor, right? In a lot of ways, Peter is the first pastor. And so like every other pastor who's come after him, when he senses God's presence, that God is doing something, what does he do? He launches a building campaign. <laughs> and it's not good. First, maybe the building campaigns need to happen, but first, let's stop and listen. What is it that you hear? What's actually going on? I like to think that God recognizes, this is total conjecture, but I like to think that God recognizes that Peter's had one too many blunders in, in, in a week and he's just like, I'm gonna cut this guy off. If I let him keep going, right? Where, where words are many, sin is, is not lacking. It's in Proverbs. And so I think he just cuts him off as a mercy of like, I'll just speak before he really messes this up. So what I'm trying to get at is, is, you know, he cuts him off and just says, listen, boys, this is my son. Hang on his every word. If you want me, this is God speaking to the disciples. If you want me, you want him. If you want me, if you want to hear from me, listen to him. Again, my kids were right. Jesus is God. True worship of Jesus means organizing your listening in front of all of your doing and your working. You're like, yeah, uh-huh, okay. No, 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 think about it. Because this is actually something we really struggle with. 
A lot of great people come into the church with a kind of anxious fear of being right with God. Right? I mean, it's understandable. Many people, not, not after weeks and weeks and weeks or years of coming, maybe not, but that initial phase where you're like, I think I'm gonna go to church this Sunday. What is that about? What's stirring? Something's, and it's good. So it's a good stirring, but it's anxiety. It's an anxious feeling of like, I may not be doing what's right with my life. That's the starting place. And, 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 and like I said, that all makes a perfect sense. But the interesting thing is, is that, you know, that carries forward for many Christians. Like we, 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 we start to look at our life. We don't like the direction that it's going. We, we, there are certain things about it that there's just this cognitive dissonance that we feel that based on our proclamations and that what's actually happening, we're anxious about that. And what happens in the midst of all that anxiety is, is sometimes what we do is we start doing. We get busy. That's what we do. We put a lot of disciplines and serving in our lives without uh, stillness and listening. If we're not careful, we reduce our worship of Jesus to just religious workaholism. That's so much of the church. Just religious athleticism. And what's underneath all of that is just this compulsive anxiety driving it. And I think what this the thing teaches us right here off the top is it's like right here is the moment, Peter, you, you just need to learn when you are in the presence of God, stop talking. There's nothing you need to do. You need to behold. You just need to enjoy him, listen to him. You know, when you look at your life, honestly, what do you see? You know, do you have more serving than you have stillness? Is there a balance to it? I talk to a lot of people. One of the things that I'm deeply burdened by, and if you know me, you know that this is true, and I'm, I'm, and I'm with you, and I'm a fellow traveler in all the guilt, guilty feelings. But one of the things that burdens me as a pastor as I listen to people is everybody is so busy and overwhelmed. I mean, we're just tired all the time. And the way, you know, as a, as a parent of little ones, the way you notice it is like you get to the end of the day and you're reading a bedtime story and like you're skipping sentences and pages, right? Just get to the end of this thing. And it's, it's such a contradiction of life because at the end of my life, I wish I, I, you know, I'm sure that I will wish I could have every, those are gonna be the moments that I valued more than anything. When you look at your life, what is it that you see? And you know, so and for, for some people, it's neither, right? It's not. In, there's no stillness, and there is no serving and sacrificing either. And it's like, well, listen, that obviously that's even further from worship. But for a lot of well-intentioned people, we'd rather sacrifice some time in doing something over sitting and listening to Jesus by just simply opening His Word, reading about Him, and just sitting still. I don't need to do anything right now. I just need to listen. It's really difficult for us. This is actually just difficult. You know, fun fact. Here, I'll help you in your friendship and in your marriage. You ready? One of the things, here's the, one of the greatest barriers to listening. You know what it is? There's an actual phrase for it. It's called the, the, the thought-speech differential. 
all right? And what that is, is when you're listening to someone, you can think faster than they can talk because the average person talks in conversation about 120 to 150 words per minute. And so you can, your brain processes at a, at a ridiculous speed and it can process. That's why in the middle of your conversation with your friend, you're th- also drifting off occasionally and thinking about your grocery list, right? Anyone? Or your spouse? You're thinking, you know, whatever it is. And so what happens is eventually also too, um, you cut off your listening because you're thinking so, you can process so fast, you start getting anxious about your rejoinder. You start getting anxious about the fact that when they stop talking, whenever that is, uh, I will be left with wondering what to say. So I better start planning that now. And so then we just jump in with something. Learn to just wait Stay intent and like staying engaged with the conversation. And then when they're done, it's okay to pause. You will be shocked at how many people will say, man, I really feel like they really listen to me because when I get done talking, they say, hey, give me a second. I wanna think about what you just said. I think Peter is deploying the speech thought, the thought speech differential right here. He's immediately thinking about what he needs to do because he sees something amazing as opposed to just sitting, pausing and being still and and trusting in the fact that God is okay with the fact that he needs time to process it. And so what we're looking at here is just that we wanna learn how to stop and be still. I read somewhere a long time ago and this stuck with me. I can't remember where, but that a fanatic can be described as someone who, when they don't know what to do, they simply double their speed. And that describes much of my life and probably your life as well. And that's the ever-present temptation in the human condition when we get anxious or stressed about the quality of our lives or the particular condition of our standing with God. We just speed up in our doing. And so, friends, the easy burden, the light yoke that Jesus talks about when he invites people to him, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, right? And I will give you rest. Take my easy burden, take my light yoke, right? Take this upon you. I don't think what Jesus is offering, and by the way, that offer is an offer of like, yes, you will serve and you will sacrifice for him and for the sake of others. That's what it means. However, that being said, to do that, Right sacrifice for Jesus, right serving for Jesus is always birthed out of stillness and listening first. Otherwise, it's just anxious fanaticism and religious athleticism. And this is how you know where the difference is. All right, two, here's the second thing we see here about what it means to worship Jesus. True worship means valuing the ordinary, not just the extraordinary. Valuing the ordinary, not just the extraordinary. Peter wants to commemorate the mountaintop experience and set up camp. Rightfully so, I get that. Why go anywhere else? You know what I mean? Why go anywhere else when you have a shining Jesus on on a mountaintop away from all the ordinary hustle and bustle of life? That's what I would want too, right? Keep it nice and comfy right here away from churches, (laughs) and all the other junk, just me and you, Jesus. And nothing is more ordinary than (laughs) sickness, 
people conflicts, and religious disputes. And when Jesus has been away up on the mountain, uh, a father has brought his sick son to the disciples for healing, which they've struggled to perform, haven't they? And so, (laughs) once again, once they come down the mountain, they're witnessing an argument that's broke out between the Bible teachers and the disciples. Imagine that. Bible teachers getting in fight with church people. And this whole scene has Jesus just grieved. And there's mystery here, I'll admit this. Uh, what is he grieved about? I mean, he says a pretty hard thing. Oh, faithless. How long am I supposed to bear with you? I don't quite know. It's hard to say, actually, I think, what he's grieved about. But there's something about the faith, faithlessness that he's witnessing in everybody and the arguing. But don't miss what I think the deeper implication when you put it all in context. The, the deeper point here is that most of what Jesus is teaching these disciples won't happen on the mountaintops, but it'll happen in the valleys. Peter would have loved to stay up on top where things are glorious and bright, warm and beautiful. But Jesus is like, that's not where discipleship is really takes place. You have to come down. You see, Jesus gets distance. And you'll see this as you, as you read the gospels. You'll regularly see this in Jesus. Jesus gets distance um, for clarity only so that he can then go back into the difficulty of ordinary community. Friday, just Friday night, I went to a Billy Strings concert. Oh, yeah? Well, you should have went in my place. <laughs> because I, I, I know it was great. I don't mean it like that. I just, my, my, it was my sister. My sister was like, please come with me. I want you to go to the show with me. I, really, I love Billy Strings. And so I was like, all right, yeah, fine. So we go and she's like, I got us a really good seat. And I was like, great. And so, uh, and she did, it was amazing. It was amazing. If you know me at all, I'm like, I don't really particularly want to touch people. And so uh, (laughs) we had front row in the balcony, right? So I'm just like hovering over. And so the bottom of is at the Brady uh, Music Center downtown, which is a great venue. And and so the the whole floor at the bottom, there's not seats. They're all standing. I mean, it's like sheep, you know? I mean, they're just sandwiched in there. I'm looking at that. I mean, I'm anxious just looking at it, right? (laughs) Um, just a sea of people crammed in this space. Um, and it, but I tell you, for, for, for those people, that was very much a worshipful experience. Um, there was a cloud uh, hovering over that as well. Um, but a different kind of cloud. And so, but I, as I... <laughs> I'm thinking about this text at a Billy Strings concert. And so I'm in the front row of the balcony looking down at all the schleps down there because I had this amazing seat and uh, they were really enjoying it down there. Um, but as I, and I'm thinking, this is good that I'm here. You know what I mean? I'm like, this is so good that I'm here and not down there. And, and it's good, like that's good. You, to, it's good to have moments where you get distance on life. You know, because up there I could be like, okay, you know, there's the exit and there's the exit, you know? I know exactly how to get out of this joint if I need to, you know? Um, 
And so it's really, really good to get distance. And by the way, you should do that. You should go off to the mountaintops, whatever that proverbial mountaintop thing is for you, to get distance on things like community and conflict and all. But here's the thing, you can't live there. You can't live in the balcony. You know, so as I looked down on that, I thought to myself, yeah, um, this is wonderful. This is good that I'm here, but I can't stay here. That's actually where I'll be on Monday. I'll be back into the fold, into the mix of life, of rubbing elbows with people that are strange or smell funny or have patchwork corduroys. So um, be back into that soon enough. And so we must learn this. This is an often overlooked reality that Jesus wants us to listen to him um, and so that we can go out and live for the sake of him and others but he also wants us to learn what it means to give up our pride and die to all of our selfish agendas and all of that. Um, that leads to self-indulgence and image protection. He wants us to die to all of that. that. But this is a hard task. And it would be nice that that task was primarily accomplished in the glorious mountaintop experiences um, of feeling close to God, feeling his warmth, his pleasure, and his love and acceptance and far from the boring and frustrating realities of community life. But that's just not reality. And that's, that's a good thing. We are not meant to learn worship of Jesus only on Sunday mornings when the songs fit our preference, when the, when the preacher up there is, is compelling and motivational. We're actually meant to listen to Jesus and respond to him in our workplace meetings, in our living rooms, in our kitchens, in our classrooms. You learn what the worship of Jesus is all about when there's a conflict around the dinner table on Tuesday night, as much as you do in here during liturgy. That's what I'm getting at. When you sit at the dinner table with your family or with your friends and there's something tense going on or whatever it is, that is a moment for you to think, this is for me to, I'm being trained in worship. I am worshiping Jesus in this moment too. What does it mean for me to worship here? You're, you're deploying a particular kind of value upon the moment. There's value in all of that. This is what we're learning here. And so the worship of Jesus is being refined in a million different ordinary experiences. The trick is to learn all of this is training ground. You're meant to value and then speak into it and act into it with intention and love. All right, so we have listening. We have value the ordinary, not just the extraordinary. Three, worshiping Jesus means giving him your most precious things. Your most precious things. Notice what Jesus says to the Father. Just a really, you know, in the midst of this thing, what's going on? They explain it to him. And it's, verse, it's in verse 19, and he says this, and this is just, just, if you can remember this little phrase, it's really good, but he just says, bring him to me, give him to me. What's more precious than your son or your daughter if you're a parent? Nothing for a parent, but that's not all. Uh, something's really strange happens if you, you know, if you noticed it throughout this scene. The boy is brought to him, and then first what? They brought the boy to him, that's verse 20. And when the spirit, this unclean spirit or whatever in, in this boy, 
And it sees him, he immediately convulsed the boy. It's like he has this visceral reaction to Jesus. And he fell on the ground and rolled about and foamed at the mouth. And Jesus does this strange thing. It's like right in the midst of this, he then has a conversation with the father. It's like he draws out the father's heart. And so he, he asks him, how long has this been going on? And the father in desperation asks for help, but does so with this kind of like half-hearted uncertainty, doesn't he? He's just like, he's desperate. He, he, he wants help, but he's like, I don't really know if this is gonna work. I mean, we've already, everything's been failed up to this point. Verse 22, if you can do anything, he says, have compassion on us and help us. And to which Jesus almost, I don't know if he's chuckling or what here, but, and Jesus says to him, if you can, you know, what? All things are possible for one who believes. It's kind of a test, isn't it, of the father. The father uh, being maybe, maybe in the whole section, maybe the only one in this whole section showing what real true like worship actually looks like. Verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. That's pretty much just put that on your, you know, wall in your house somewhere. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I believe in you. Help my unbelief. But notice this. Jesus rebukes this unclean spirit. The boy convulses and then the boy lays there like a corpse. And so everybody around him is like failed again. He's dead. And after a certain amount of time, Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up. And he's fine. What's interesting here is in the dialogue of this desperate father, the fear of handing over his son and seeming initial tragedy of doing so. Because what I'm trying to get at here is notice that the boy doesn't immediately get better, does he? He actually seems to get worse at first. And so what the point I'm trying to get at here is this is actually such a perfect analogy of what the journey of learning true worship looks like and feels like at times. Um, you see, over time in discipleship, Jesus won't ask less of what's dear to you. He will ask more of it. He'll ask more of it. He'll get at things that seem the most precious to us, the, the things that stir up our emotions and, and where our beliefs lie so that he can show his all-sufficiency more and more to you. N.T. Wright says this, uh, people today often suppose that the early years of a person's Christian pilgrimage are the difficult ones and that as you go on in the Christian life, it gets more straightforward. The opposite is frequently the case. Precisely when you learn to walk beside Jesus, you are given harder tasks, which will demand more courage. You know the, the story of the prodigal son? Who do you think has a harder task? The prodigal? To stop sleeping around, stop doing all the drugs, stop doing the whatever is going on and come back home to the father? or the older brother who's bitter. I would argue the older brother has the harder task. That's a much heavier lift 
And this is so much of what the Christian life is like. There are stages to it. And early on in the, I'm not talking about particularly like just your age. I'm talking about the development of the Christian life. Early on, you struggle with the sins of the prodigal. You're working things out. You're working things out in your sex life, your whatever that is, your, your relationship life, your career, all of that. And then you get older and you get older and you, maybe you tamp down some of that stuff and you're like, I have zero interest in doing any of that stuff. That's just not sins I struggle with. Friends, it's not like you have fully arrived or anything. Now you're dealing with things like anger and bitterness and judgmentalism and jealousy. And those are much more difficult things to deal with. And those are the things that Jesus is like, yep, that's what we're gonna address. And I want you to address it because there's deeper levels of your discipleship. There are deeper things here for you. And that's what happens in our life. Things will get touched upon. The lesson here is that true worship means always discovering deeper parts of our lives where we secretly kept tight grip on things, things that we still don't want to offer up, things that will feel terrifying and threatening to our identity, to our comfort, and to our ego. Things like our money, things like our sexual lives, things like our career choices, things like our serving choices, things like our friendships, things like our social circles. Here's the important nuance though. And this is, this is why I read all of this here. When you really get serious about your worship with Jesus and you get serious and careful about saying, all right, I'm starting to realize that this is a precious thing that I've been like white knuckling over the years. And I wanna hand this over to Jesus. I really wanna start saying here, I wanna bring this to you, whatever that thing is. When you do that, you might initially experience some convulsions. Expect that. What I'm trying to say is, is when you start to really hand Jesus your most precious stuff, expect it to get worse before it gets better. Expect it to be really hard. Expect that it might actually look like a corpse. <laughs> you might look and feel like a corpse. That's Jesus dealing with them. You might feel some pushback and it might seem like a death. Don't give up hope. Wherever there is a crucifixion for Jesus' sake, there will be a resurrection. That's what you have to learn. What looks terrible and terrifying at first will lead to Jesus lifting you up over time and saying, I didn't see this coming. And that was awful. <laughs> That's been terrible, but man, it was worth it. Jesus, I believe wholeheartedly, and I think this scene shows this, and this just, it's on repeat in the gospel, but Jesus will honor your honesty and your courage to give him your most precious things. What are they? Identify them and give them those things, even if it means that you have to plead with him for belief and for courage. Actually, I would argue that real honesty will always mean confessing you need help in your belief and in your courage. I can't do it, help me. And Jesus says, you're finally getting it. That's actually what true worship looks like, relying on him, not just to heal, but to hold you as he's healing you and you're convulsing. <laughs> All right, this last thing, wrap it up. 
true worship, worshiping Jesus, means learning prayer is the most important thing that you can offer. After Jesus heals the boy, the disciples ask about their inadequacy because that's something that will always get revealed as you worship Jesus over time is you don't have less and less awareness of your inadequacy. You learn, you learn more and more of your inadequacies. And so they're asking about theirs with Jesus and Jesus just gives them this short and simple little answer, doesn't he? Verse 28, and when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, probably because they're embarrassed, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we cast them out? And he said to them, well, you guys didn't pray. <laughs> now think about this. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? And ironic that disciples of Jesus thought that they could face evil without prayer. They thought that they could somehow do something good for God without consulting God. Who's that sound like? Me. Sounds like preachers that put together sermons all by skill and none of it by prayer. Sounds like a lot of things that happened in the church. This is the starting place, prayer. Prayer is the starting place. Prayer is the middle place. Prayer is the ending place of all worship. It's all hinged on prayer. Our lives of loyalty, service, sacrifice, whatever it is, you're, of enjoyment of God, all of these things, they're either moving, none of it's static. It's always moving towards prayer or it's, more, it's moving towards self-help and self-sufficiency. You, know, you have either one of those directions. It's funny how prayer, which is the most necessary thing, is typically the first thing to go in a worship a worshiping person. But prayer is what keeps us connected. It's what keeps us afloat. It's what keeps you buoyant and a, buoyant and a, and a life of craziness and chaos and evil. Evil will defeat us without prayer. Every time. But evil doesn't stand a chance when we call upon God in the name of Jesus. If it is true that over time in truly worshiping Jesus, you will face more of your inadequacies, then it must become true that over time you also, there's just this direct correlation as you come in contact with worshiping Jesus, as you come in more contact with your inadequacies, then you should grow in your devotion of prayer at the same time. That's what should happen over a lifetime. Because it is in the place of prayer that our inadequacy is met with his power and his presence. That's what happens you are experiencing more of your inadequacies so that you will go more towards prayer. That's what God wants of us. And so here's what we'll just do. Let's pray now. <laughs> Let's just end in prayer. You know, we listen to Jesus in his word, right? We value the ordinary spaces and ordinary relationships that we come in contact with. We recognize that in our listening that where he is telling us things about what is what we're holding back, you know, image things, comfort things, whatever the things are, we all have them. And he's saying, I want that. And we're struggling with giving them because we're like, I don't know what it's going to happen if I give this to you. And he's like, well, it may not be pretty, but I will heal you. I'll heal you. And so we pray. So as we enter communion, let us spend time, a few moments of prayer. And I invite you to continue to pray <laughs> as, as we leave here this morning, 
Come in here and pray with us on Wednesday night. Come in for our services. We'll be having a prayer service on Good Friday. Pray, pray, pray. I'll remind you of what the Apostle Paul said as we start our time in prayer that he wanted all of us Christians to be reminded of. But he was told by Jesus himself that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed with his friends, with his disciples, he ate that, this ordinary meal. And after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. This is the blood, the new covenant, his promise to be with us, to heal us, to never forsake us. And so as you come forward in a little bit, you don't have to be a member of this church. You have to be, you are called to be someone who's taking it um, in a worthy manner, which means an honest manner, a manner in which there's real integrity in you. And I don't mean sinless. I just mean you're being honest about who you are and you're standing with the Lord. And the fact that you believe, but you need help with your unbelief, if that is you, Jesus is Lord to you. If, you. if you recognize that, you're invited to come forward to this station, to this station. There's a gluten-free station over there. Take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. If that's not where you're at, that is okay. I'm glad that you are here. Deeply glad that you're here. And I hope that you continue to ask questions. Let us pray. Father, we struggle in our ability to sit still. We struggle in our ability to still our scattered minds and listen to you. We struggle in our ability to trust you enough with the things that we like to hold on to tightly. Give us the courage to hand you what we need to. Give us the courage to sit and listen to you. Give us the courage to look at all of our moments of our lives with a different lens. Give us these ability. We can't do this on our own. We can't. We can't be kind and loving to our spouses. We can't be kind and loving to our friends. We can't be the, the, the men and women of integrity that we need to be in our workplaces. We can't do any of this unless you give us your power. And so we ask for that. Uh, we ask for peace. As we finish up our morning, we ask uh, for forgiveness. We ask for the ability to forgive others. We ask for all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.